Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daily Crane Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I am joined by Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, sunny today and um, distinctly s- distinct sense of spring in the air. It's a bit early, but uh, I'm sure we're going to have some cold, wet weather still, but all fine. Thank you. I hope you all are too. Indeed. Uh, Johannesburg is finally looking a little bit up. Uh, the kind of gripping, freezing, merciless cold has broken, at least for now. Um, but I'm sure it's not over yet. And we're joined by Mr. Maurice Root. Maurice, how are you? How's it, guys? Yeah, I think uh, we've broken the back of winter, I think. <laughs> That's, everyone says that, and there's always like one or two more cold fronts at the end of <laughs> August, and everyone yeah. <laughs> loses their minds. <laughs> Speaking of losing their minds, um, let's speak <laughs> about this opinion piece by Adrian Basson, the chief editor of News24. <laughs> and uh, this is um, titled... One step closer to an ANCDA grand coalition and why it's good news. So I'm just going to quote a bit from this thing. He says, quote, a significant political moment took place at the University of the Western Cape campus last week. The governing ANC and the official opposition, the DA, moved closer towards the possibility of a grand coalition in 2024. This is possibly the single most significant political <laughs> development of the year so far. ANC Secretary General Fekile Mbalula told the conference and coalitions, we are also keen to explore grand coalitions in order to ensure stability, service delivery, and local development. Mbulula later confirmed to News24 that he was referring specifically to the DA there. Mbulula said that the idea was currently limited to local government, but Bassan speculates that that doesn't mean that it will stay limited to local government. Um, he then goes on to say, Bassan, uh, the actions of rogue political entrepreneurs have forced the ANC and DA, representing about 80% of the South African electorate, to consider cooperation. But, and this is a big but, nobody in the DA who has access to the internet and, uh, and a calculator can be bullish on the fact that a pact with the IFP Action SA and Freedom Front Plus and a few small parties will get them to 50% of the vote next year. Um, realistically, if the DA wants, uh, he says that the ANC will probably still be the largest party in the country after the 2024 polls on a grand coalition is exceedingly more attractive and stable option than opening the doors of the union buildings to the EFF and a few opportunistic political entrepreneurs, says Basson. So I have a number of problems with this thing, and I think uh, I'll start off with Marius as to, to uh, whether he agrees with me or not. But uh, one of the things that kind of annoys me about this is it's got like, it, there's obvious evidence of direct um, communication with Mbulula about his thoughts on this and on the ANC's position on a grand coalition with the DA. Now, I think that's also overstated because I think there are different factions in the ANC and they clearly haven't made up their mind on whether they want to be in coalition with the, the DA or the EFF. Um, but he then says, you know, the DA says they don't want to be in a coalition with the ANC. But, you know, that's what they have to say. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, I mean, I don't know. Is there any serious push inside the DA for a coalition with the ANC? I don't think there is. Some people argue that there is. I don't think uh, there's much evidence of that. Um, and the real problem with this whole idea, you know, the, the argument here is basically that this is the least worst option, that having some sort of shaky multi party coalition may not even be possible and even if it is possible it'll be really unstable or the alternative being the ANC and EFF together. I'm not really sure how an ANCDA coalition fixes any of the problems that we have in South Africa. Um, Morris, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> I see no upside for the DA against coalition of the ANC. 
the the ANC won't really need the DA actually to have coalition. If the ANC goes under fifty percent next year, I've said it before, it'll only be a couple of percentage points. I think they they could get to one of the smaller parties. But the DA wouldn't be able to push through any of its kind of policy proposals. There's no ways the ANC is going to say, okay, let's scrap BE, you know, let's change the labor laws, let's uh, devolve more power to the provinces, you know, all this, let's, uh, you know, uh, we, we're not going to do NHI or any of this stuff. The DA is not going to be able to put through any of its policy proposals. It's going to be, it's just going to be, a, 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 it's going to be kind of a neutered uh, organization in this coalition. And in nearly, um, it, it's uh, kind of an iron law in politics. The smaller party in the coalition is normally the one that comes out of the end looking worse. If you look at the National Party and the ANC and the government of national unity in the mid-90s, that really was a mistake of uh, for, for the Nats to go into the coalition with the ANC. It really neutered the party, and we saw what happened. I mean, a couple of years later, it didn't even exist anymore. In the UK, there's another example, the Lib Dems and the Tories. The Lib Dems were into a coalition with the Tories, uh, and they had to renege on a lot of their... Um, kind of campaign promises. They, there was one about university um, fees, which the Lib Dems had said they will, you know, they're going to hold the line. They're not going to let university fees get increased. And they did pretty well in that 2010 election in university towns and so on. But being part of this coalition, they had to push, uh, they had to let go of that campaign promise. And then the party in the next election, 2015, did very badly while the Tories saw an increase. Then they, they actually won a majority in the 2015 election. After having needed a coalition with the Lib Dems in 2010, and the Lib Dems, I think 2010 was their best election ever. I think they won uh, 57 seats. 2015, they got almost wiped out. I think they went down to about eight seats, and they still haven't really recovered from that. So, yeah, as I say, there's no real upside. I don't think the DA is not going to be able to push through any of its policy proposals. I think a lot of people who support the DA won't be happy with them going into coalition with ANC, and it'll just be it'll really just be a coalition in name. I doubt the DA is going to be able to, as I say, do you know change, change the, move the needle on anything in South Africa. And as I say, I think the ANC will probably be able to, like, I, I don't see the ANC falling down to as low as 40%. You know, lowest I see as it stands now, the ANC is probably going to get about 45%. So they'll probably need a handful of small parties to push them over 50%. So I don't, I mean, you know, I'm also quite skeptical of an ANC-EFF coalition even. We've seen now that uh, ANC and EFF aren't really getting on there while you're hating anymore. A lot of senior people in ANC, including Mbalula, who apparently was pretty keen on an ANC-EFF coalition a couple of months ago, has come out against it. So, yeah, I think this is all pretty moot. And um, yeah, if there is a coalition next year, uh, it's going to be the ANC and a couple of small parties, I think. The DA and the EFF. And I think, as I said, I think it would be a mistake for the DA to go into coalition with the ANC anyway. Uh, so... Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much probably correct. I mean, you could you could even see a party like, and I, you know, they're not tending that way right now. But you, know, you could maybe see a party like the IFP if it was able to be essentially one of two or three coalition partners with the ANC, saying, you know, if you give us basically free reign in, in KZN, then we'll go into national coalition government with you. Um, but even then, I mean, yeah, I, I think that we even might be heading for a bit of a position now where there's a possibility that no one will be able to form a fully stable coalition. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot will depend on the kind of attitude and the election results. So if the ANC suffers a big setback, uh, it'll be more difficult for any political party in the mix to form a coalition with them because no one wants to tie themselves to a, to a sinking ship. Um, Michael, what, what do you make of this? I mean, I, I cannot think of a worse idea politically than this whole grand coalition thing. And it really seems to be something that I think some people inside the ANC are much more keen on than 
really anyone else's. I don't know. What do you make of this? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that might be the the, uh, the evidence of, or the the reason why one should be um, should be skeptical and, and a little anxious, um, is you know you uh, a party that's been dominant for thirty years, uh, it's rapidly losing uh, its credibility. It's already lost its control over institutions, uh, of its own government departments. Uh, it just can't do the job. Um, it's in fact, in the past months, it's turned to its own bet noir. It doesn't like the private sector, but it's actually turned to the private sector to say, please help us. You know, we literally can't do this on our own. Um, the, you know, the, the, these are all very candid admissions of the, the ruling party itself that it can't do the job. There is, you know, on what grounds could one possibly suggest that working with that outfit would bring uh, anything better. And I, I'm very much reminded here again of the, of the 80s, um, this, this idea that pe people just couldn't pull themselves away from the idea that the Nats had to somehow be part of the dominant governance process of the country. Who else could do, who else can do this job? Was, was, you know, that was the frequent question. And that's what we see increasingly today as well. We can't really do without the NC. We've somehow got to work with them. And stability is actually, uh, you know, is not actually the, the objective we want to achieve at this point. We, we could actually do with a little bit more instability, actually, if it means getting over um, this very, very bad period of governance that, that, that we've now had. Um, it's going to take, you know, we can see here in the Western Cape at the moment of the taxi strike. It's 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 not plain sailing. It's dangerous, um, but it it calls for a resolve. It calls for principle. We've got to apply these things. Um, and I think Morris is absolutely right. This is these are the the kind of guiding principles that ought to define how the DA sees its its future. Um, and that uh, it, it, you know, thinking in terms of a coalition with a completely rotten outfit. It's now, you know, as you were saying a moment ago, it's it's a kind of dying beast. That's really not what you want to hit your uh, hit your wagon to at all. I think one of the problems here, um, and this uh, this may be an unfair criticism of Poisson, but Maurice would like his thoughts on this, is that policy is actually just not being taken seriously in these considerations. You know, try and find, uh, you know, maybe the the DA under Musi Maimani might have found more common ground with the ANC. But in its current sort of political positioning, policy positioning, it's difficult to to see how there could be any alignment. I mean, on almost every single policy of major initiative of the last few years, you mentioned things like NHI, things like BE, uh, the DA is completely opposed to the ANC's plans. So how, you know, this is like uh, the, 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 the radical free market party going into coalition with the uh, Communist Party. It's not quite as extreme as that, but... Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't know. Do you think that policy differences are just being kind of brushed under the carpet here for, I'm not really sure what reason to save the ANC? What do you, what do you think of this? Yeah, policy? I think so. And you know, it's, I think at local government level, mm. you can ignore policy differences to a much greater level than at national, uh, a greater extent than at national level. I mean, we right, saw that- it's more, it's more simple. Uh, exactly, know, it's more, the then it is more about service delivery. It's, you know, I mean, to use a silly phrase, but it's the coal face, you know, of government. Mm. Making sure people that their rubbish is getting collected, that there's electricity, that they've got water and all that kind of thing. Then I think when you're at national level, <clears throat> it's a much, uh, as I say, policy becomes much more important. And there's very little overlap between uh, the ANC and the DA. I mean, the only way I could see this working is if the DA said, okay, we'll go into coalition with you, but we want finance, we want education, and we want Department of Public Enterprises, something like that. And 
that is our territory. You hands off, you know. We'll support you in budgets, we'll support your candidate presidents, all that kind of stuff. But we want these three or four depart departments. And like as I say, important departments like finance and national treasury and so on. But that's something we will never ever see happen. Yeah. And if the DA doesn't have control at least of some important departments, it's really just as you're saying, it's keeping <clears throat> uh, setting ship afloat. It's you know, it's kind of being uh, the blood blood donor for uh, somebody who's dying from some terrible yeah. disease. If they didn't have your blood, they'd be dead within a couple of minutes. So uh, yeah, they're just uh, just for me. This doesn't make. Uh, I don't see any upside for the DA, and oh, just another example. I mean, we saw the uh, ANC and IFP also govern together in KwaZulu Natal, and the IFPs. This was the early part of uh, the century, and the IFPs only starting to recover really now. So it was twenty years that it's, uh, it was damaged from governing with the ANC. So yeah, the, uh, oh, I mean, you you'll know more people in the DA than I do, Nick. But tell them I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> well i certainly will if i get to uh, talk to any of them um but yeah i <laughs> i i don't think this is realistically on the table right now and um i will just say that the sort of environment where no one is really strong enough to hold a stable majority in parliament even if it's the anc with a bunch of small parties um is actually an opportunity an environment which may allow more reform than people think uh, because it means that the sort of united opposition will occasionally be able to overvote the ANC. Um, uh, the moment you drop below 50% of the seats, all sorts of things become possible. Mm. You can have defections, you can have parliamentary politics playing out in interesting ways, and Parliament will once again become what it should have been from the beginning, which is uh, one of the most important centres of our democracy. So I think that's a scenario that people often don't think about. You know, we kind of have something like the status quo, but the, the ANC is not able to sort of just legislatively do what it likes. Um, that actually already sometimes happens now. Uh, ANC MPs are pretty bad at attending parliament. And so yeah. every now and again, they, they fail a vote because they can't get the quorum um, <laughs> to, to actually fill, fill the seats and things and pass the vote. Uh, so you can definitely see that kind of stuff, I think, happening more after after an election that... that uh, uh, sees the ANC drop below 50%. But, you know, that's still a long ways away. We don't even know if that's going to happen. Mm. So uh, I think for now, let's move on to the next topic. And this is a report by Treasury into the free electricity <clears throat> program. So in South Africa, households which are very poor um, uh, on the indigent list of municipalities are supposed to receive a certain allocation of free electricity from the government. So we're talking about basically the, the people in RDP houses and shacks and that kind of thing. Um, people with almost no income or no income at all. And uh, they were, they're supposed to get, I think, free uh, 50 kilowatt hours of electricity. Um, now, there's enough money in the Treasury budget for about 10 million poor households to receive this benefit, which is quite a lot, right? That's a significant chunk of the population. And yet, in reality, the Treasury's analysis found that only about 2.3 million households get this. And most of this is due to the misallocation of funds and bad administration. Um, essentially, what happens is this money is given to municipalities to, uh, by national government to say, you can uh, help, help the poor pay for the poor's electricity like this. And it's usually spent on operating costs, salaries, or other projects just kind of gets diverted. Even in areas where users are directly supplied by ESCOM, households still have to apply to the municipality um, uh, to be on their indigent list to receive this free electricity. And um, 
the municipalities just don't do a good job of this. So uh, ESCOM is, thinks that there's about 5 million households that it directly supply, supplies who would qualify for this, but only 800,000 of them are actually receiving the stipend. And I think this is a great, this is one of those things that's like a, a true indictment just of the state of governance. Because this, this is a policy that the ANC should be able to tout as saying, look, you know, here we are, we're providing for the poor, we're providing for the, the, the most desperate amongst us um, to, to access electricity, to get some of the basics of modern life. And yet, because of poor governance, so much is stolen, so much is broken, that just it just doesn't happen, even though the money is there. Uh, Michael, what do, you, what do you make of the story? Hmm. I think the, the very first point to be made is if, if we wanted an illustration of uh, the, the reason for our misgivings about a DA-ANC coalition, this is exactly what we're talking about. You, you're talking about a, you know, actual daily practices in the in the institutional fabric of of South African society that have need, that have got to be tackled, and they've got to be tackled with great vigor and with with a sense of purpose and 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 determination to get to the bottom of the problem and root out the the the, the bad elements. And you know, is it likely that we are going to be able to do that in the smallest way if there are uh, Partners, if you have partners in your governance arrangement, who uh, who will be resisting it, and 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 I think this is this is a, a, a very good case case in point. Um, I, I did like um, when you <laughs> when you said um, Nicholas that that often this money is diverted to operational costs, and you used the phrase other projects. And the the thing that immediately came to mind is quite irrationally in a way, but was that that mayor in. Um, I think it was KZN somewhere who'd who'd um, was so happy with his 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 uh, being appointed as mayor that he took his blue light brigade down to. His yeah, room. it was it was the municipal uh, car, the mayor's car yeah, that he had that's managed it, yeah. to rest out of the hands of the IFP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think I think I think we would class that as an, as an other project. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? That there is a great. Um, a great initiative you get to help people who really can't afford uh, electricity who are really battling as morris often says people who were jobless it's not just it's not just a figure this is a real f household it's a real person who can't put food in their table and so on this is the kind of person this that this project is or this initiative is aimed at and then the but the money just doesn't doesn't reach him or her because uh there are other people in the way who are venal or thieving or just inefficient um so yeah it's actually there's a tragic element to it it's shocking um and the kind of thing we need to confront but it, it there is that tragic element as well morris what do you make of the story i think this is one of those things that any new government would, uh, even if it was quite ideologically divided, would be able to kind of make us a promise. And I'm surprised that things like this don't appear more in our election rhetoric. Mm. You'd think that this mm. this kind of issue would be dynamite um, wow. for undermining ANC support. That's, you know, unfortunately, it's pretty much a dog bites man story. You know, it doesn't, you know, this kind of thing doesn't surprise anybody. And I think most people agree that, you know, I don't mind paying tax and so on and municipal rates. If it's going to actually helping people, I don't mind if X amount of municipal rates goes to people to pay for the electricity and so on. I really don't have a problem with that. I have a problem when this money gets taken and stolen and you know spent on going to celebrate uh, the mayor getting elected and you know uh, use the municipal car for stuff that isn't to do with municipal work and so on. So yeah, I mean it's 
yeah, I think, as you say, this is probably going to, this is one of the core things any new gamer is going to have to deal with, I think. And I think, as I say, most people I don't think have a problem with indigent households getting X amounts of free electricity or free water. You know, we all know the history of this country, and I think it's all, it's fine to help people who are struggling, but what it comes down to, we need, poor people need to be helped, people who are living in uh, bad conditions and so on. But the only way that sustainably people can escape those kind of, kind of conditions is work. And if we're sitting with 30 or 40% unemployment, people like that, they, they kind of, um, unfortunately, they face a lifetime penury with no real uh, hope of escaping, which is the real tragedy, I think. I mean, just as Michael said there, I mean, you know, we can look at these numbers, 35% of people unemployed, but each of those people is somebody who's now have the, uh, the indignity of not working. You know, the stress of not having money, not being able to pay for your uh, family's food or, you know, you don't know if you're going to be able to pay your rent and all that kind of thing. And that's millions of South Africans across this country. And that is one of the greatest tragedies, I think, in post-apartheid yeah. South Africa is uh, so much human capital has been destroyed. Uh, exactly right. Uh, Michael, any, any final thoughts on this before we move on? Mm. I mean, the thing that I, I – a piece of research or recurring research that I'm very fond of using every now and then in, in writing – on is is the CRA's quality of life index, which I think they began. That's CRA is the Center for Risk Analysis, our our research arm, if you like, um, which I think they began in 2017, and and it it measures the the kind of performance over a basket of ten issues, ten very basic things: income, access to services, uh, level of level of uh, education, whether you bond have a bonded house, and so on. But, but essentially, a basket of ten things that just that defines your your quality of life. Um, and what what routinely year after year, what that index shows is exactly as Mario says: all the things that have yet to be improved yet to be transformed that people are still waiting people are still suffering um and it's it's unfortunately it tends to be the same people who were suffering 30 years ago um and that until we confront that and deal with that this is going to be the, you know, the great unmet challenge indeed all right uh, so let's move abroad for a bit to talk about interesting developments in the world's largest democracy that being india where uh, a while ago the leader or the leader of the largest opposition party, um, the Indian National Congress, uh, and it is actually no, it is a, it is no coincidence that that's similar to the ANC. They were kind of modelled after each other. Um, Rahul Gandhi uh, was kicked out of Parliament because he had said that um, uh, he, had, he had during a speech he had asked why quote all thieves have Modi as their common surname which is playing off of, I think, a trope yeah. in, uh, in, in society that uh, Modi is like the stereotypical name of a, of a thief or something like that. Anyway, he was found guilty of defamation and sentenced to two years in prison. And Indian law says if you have sentenced, been sentenced to two years in prison, you cannot be uh, a member of parliament. Um, he has taken this up through the legal system. I think he lost a couple of court battles, but it went to the Indian Supreme Court and they have uh, stayed it for now, I think. I think it's still going through some legal um, turmoil, not 100% sure of the, the details, but essentially uh, he has been restored to parliament. And uh, I think this is very important because there's been a lot of worry recently in India that Nahendra Modi's uh, uh, BJP government has been, shall we say, um, moving the country away from some of its more democratic institutions, that it's been cracking down on freedom of the press, that it's been uh, getting chucking out NGOs, that it's been um, just generally kind of 
uh, moving the country towards one that's uh, less free and there's less room for um, independent thought. Now, this is all very important because India is facing a national general election next year. Uh, it's going to be a big year. It's going to be, I think, the US, South Africa, and India. Uh, all and UK, maybe. National election. And maybe even the UK, uh, all at the same time. So it's going to be a very political year. And seeing the uh, strength of the BJP and its allies who are formed together in an alliance in Parliament called the National Democratic Alliance, NDA, uh, essentially all the other political parties in India have formed together a coalition called the Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance, which is the India Alliance. Um, and uh, despite this, they still look like they're maybe not going to do that well in the next election. And Ahendra Modi, I believe... Uh, remains the most popular leader of any democratic country in the world in terms of approval ratings. Mm. Um, Maurice, what do you make of all this? I think this is a pretty good sign for Indian democracy. As you said, there have been some pretty worrying signs there. There have been crackdowns, as you say, on NGOs, on free press. I think India is actually, uh, they, when, uh, according to the organization Reporters Without Borders, India is, does pretty poorly on it, uh, especially... I mean, South Africa does pretty well. And I think we've got the 25th or 30th most free press in the world. India's in the hundreds, some, uh, like 120 or something. So it's quite concerning. There's also some of the rhetoric that comes out of the BJP against uh, religious minorities, especially Muslim people. Some has been quite worrying. Some senior figures in the BJP have said pretty bad things about Muslims. I mean, if we think Kilabur is bad, yeah, some of the stuff that the BJP senior people there say about Muslims is pretty bad. And we've seen some anti-Muslim pogroms in uh, places like Delhi, especially. But yeah, but this is uh, pretty heartening. And India is a very important country. Uh, mm. you know, it's the biggest biggest population in the world at the moment. Uh, and uh, compared to China, a lot of people talk about the Chinese century. I've said it before. I think it's more likely to be the Indian century. Also, mm. India is a free market. Uh, as, as the free market, mm. it's got a much more of a tradition of democracy and secularism, more, obviously more of a tradition of democracy than China. And uh, also, when you look at things like its population growth, China's got problems with the aging population, whereas India's uh, population pyramid is more what you expect from a kind of developing country, far more younger people than older people. So, yeah, and it's been growing rapidly, I think, since the uh, early 1990s when they got rid of the license rush. India, on average, has been growing about 5% a year uh, in, in terms of its economy. And if you think about how many people there are, that's, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but that's probably adding uh, an economy the size of South Africa each year to India, you know, mm. so... It's, and the number of people that are getting lifted out of poverty is amazing. Of course, far too many people still live in poverty in India. But at one stage, there were more people living in poverty in India than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. That's changed now in the last couple of years. And that trend is carrying on with India. People are uh, you know, moving out of poverty and into the middle class all the time. So there's definitely a place to watch. And uh, yeah, that's going to be a very interesting election next year. From what it looks like, the BJP is probably still going to win. But uh, there's new alliance. I mean, it's kind of the Indian moonshot pact that the... Uh, in the National Congress, a couple of other parties have put together. So it's also something to watch. And yeah, I mean, uh, if, if I had to choose a country to dominate the 21st century, I'd much rather have it be India than China. No, I agree with you on that yeah. one. Um, there's actually a sort of strange kind of irony to all of this, which is that Indira Gandhi, who is a relative of Rahul Gandhi in the INC, and she was the leader of the INC, um, is probably the Indian politician who most brought the country in the 70s and and 80s, uh, in the, sorry, in the 70s to the brink of becoming essentially a one-party state of an autocracy. Yeah. Uh, and it was due to massive civil resistance in India 
led in part by the BJP. And in fact, that's when Mahendra Modi gets his political start, is running uh, uh, secret messages and printing pamphlets that are banned by the central government uh, to kind of resist the state of emergency that Indira Gandhi uh, uh, imposed. Um, and now we kind of see sort of almost mm. like the roles have been reversed. And now Modi is the one, the all-powerful sort of central leader with huge popularity who's uh, threatening uh, Rahul Gandhi's freedoms. Um, I think there's something important in there. And, and I'd, I'd like to think that the people involved here perhaps could reflect on that, that maybe this whole trying to ban your opponent's thing or, or seeing opponents chucked out of, of parliament is, uh, I mean, to be fair, it was a court that did this, but Indian courts are famous for not, the legal system has is, is not got a great reputation, shall we say, of being free from political interference. Um, what do you make of this, Michael? Hmm. <clears throat> I think, I mean, excellent points that you've, you've both raised. Um, uh, I, I, you, you remind me of a story relating specifically to Indira Gandhi, her states of emergency in the 70s. As you say, she was she perceived that the national interest was under threat um, and that um, that the freedoms to oppose the government were were not uh, were not good for India. So she she trod on them, and it was a, a very outspoken. Um, editor of the, the India's Statesman newspaper, the Statesman, the biggest English language paper in, in, in India, a fellow called Kushrai Rani, who ran up against her constantly uh, over the, her state's emergency and her, her opposition to criticism and so on. And he warned her at one point, there are no freedoms so dangerous as those that are not exercised. And I think this is really the lesson that we see. Um, but, yeah, I mean, how extraordinary is my, my, both of you bring out, you know, the figures and, and facts that Morris has, has mentioned here. Um, that people so often forget that India is, is the world's biggest democracy. They often tend to think it's America, but, of course, India is much more numerous. Um, and then also the, the, the fact of India having overtaken China as the as, as the biggest country. So I am absolutely with with Morris. It's a, a very fascinating country, big country, powerful country, lots of amazing ideas. They've just launched a, a moon project, um, you know. So on on all kinds of levels, but very various uh, culturally and, and politically. Um, uh, I, I would imagine quite a maddening place to try to govern, but um, but nevertheless, uh, enormously rich, great deep history, um, amazing um, culture and so on. So, yeah. It, it's it's always shocking me, I think, how, how few people have kind of taken India seriously. Um, mm. you, you know, you get things like, uh, until quite recently, the UK, I think, was still giving some development aid to India. Uh, and this coincided with the launch of their first lunar orbiting satellite. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a bit of a, there's a, bit yeah, of a mismatch yeah. here somewhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Morris, anything very briefly just to, to close up for today? Yeah, just uh, two points. Uh, depending how you measure it now, the IPL, the Indian Premier League, uh, India's T20 Cricket League, is how, depending how you measure it, the second richest league, sports league in the world. Richer than oh. the English Premier League. The only one that's bigger than it is the uh, American Football League, the NFL. And just on the one point, I think there's one lesson for South Africa. After the emergency, a group of uh, a coalition of parties came together. They managed to vote Congress out. These these parties governed, but I think only for two or three years. And the coalition yes. fell apart. And then Indira Gandhi came back. Exactly, because there's so much squabbling. There were people from all across yeah. the political spectrum, the religious spectrum. And the only aim was to get uh, rid of Indira Gandhi and Congress, which they did. But there's nothing to hold this, these parties together afterwards. Yeah. And then Congress came back, I think, three years later. And they voted out a couple of times. I mean, they still they dominated Indian politics till uh, 
2009 when uh, mm. BJP won there. Um, I think it was 2014, uh, until 2014 when the BJP won this outright majority now, but they've always been in and out of, of government. And yeah, you can never, you know, rule them out, same as with the ANC, I think, unfortunately. Definitely. Um, it is also worth remembering, however, that unlike uh, South Africa, um, India, despite all of its many problems, uh, in the financial year 2021 to 2022, it got 9.1% growth. The next year, 7.2% uh, growth, and it's looking like the next uh, uh, growth cycle might be 6.3% economic growth. Um, I think I think once you get to about 5 or 6% economic growth, every 10 years, your economy doubles. Amazing. So that's no. that's the direction that's the place we should be in and uh no. you know there's a lot of things we do better than india but there's certainly some <clears> things <throat> we could copy from them yeah. uh, but anyway thank you very much and have a wonderful day we'll see you tomorrow on the daily print show cheers everyone